So starting as usual with our big picture of the judgments in Revelation, um, we've been working on chapter 17 and 18, which are getting down here in the corner, getting close to the end of the judgments, the visions of the defeated. Um, I've broken these up into three different sessions just because of the amount of material that was there um, and because they tell us so much really a lot of extra information about how this war that the dragon is waging on those who follow Jesus, you know, how they go about their business. And actually, each of those chapters has their own kind of continuity or structure to them. You may have noticed as we went through chapter 17 that it started out with a vision of the prostitute seated on many waters, and it ended the same way. So chapter 18 has its own structure as well. And that's what we'll be covering this morning. We got partly into that last week, but we'll be doing the whole thing and kind of putting the rest of it in its context here. So we talked last week about this vision of this glorious angel. Uh, and you kind of see this whole thing, it sort of bookends or closes and opens with these two angelic visions. And the argument that I made last week, and we'll make again with the mighty angel as we get to the last one, is that these are visions of the glorified Jesus that are going on here. Uh, and then you have this voice from heaven that we talked about last week, the, the command, one of two commands, uh, come out from her, my people. Then you have the lament of the kings, lament of the merchants, part one. Then we have a voice from heaven again, talking, giving us some more information on the end of Babylon. Then Lament of the Merchants, part two. And then the Lament of the Mariners. And that's not the team over on the other side of the mountain. It's it's a whole different set of things here. And then another voice from heaven, another case of this, with another command or imperative that we'll look at. And finally, this closing vision of this mighty angel that will close out chapters 17 and 18. So we're going to do this a little bit different. Rather than go through it passage by passage by passage, I'm going to take all the laments at once because that's kind of where we're starting with the the first of the laments. We did those first part, two parts last week. Um, And we'll look at all those. We'll skip over a few verses. And then we're going to come back and pick those up and uh, uh, focus in on them a little bit and then finish it up. So I got you a nice full-color picture here of all of the vision of these laments, of these three different groups. Um, There's a lot of parallels with them that we'll talk about in just a few minutes, but we start with the kings, and I'm just going to read each one of these kind of columns or one at a time, talk a couple things about it, and then we'll come back and tie them together. Uh, So it starts with the kings. The kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her When they see the smoke of her burning, they will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for a single hour your judgment has come. Now this is the third time in these two chapters that we've seen the kings who represent the the political power, whatever it happens to be on earth, as committing sexual immorality with this woman Babylon 
We saw it at the beginning of chapter 17 when we were introduced to the great prostitute. We saw it at the beginning of chapter 18. We were reminded of that idea. And um, I want to remind us again that when, we, when you see these references to sexual morality in the apocalyptic literature, particularly in the New Testament and in the Old Testament prophets, it's not talking about necessarily pornography or things like that, although it's the same word that it comes from. It's talking about idolatry. It's a metaphor that stands in for idolatry. Anything that puts God below anything else is idolatry. And that's what it's really talking about here. Now, these, these, these uh, kings we see, they... Um, you know, are, are bemoaning all these things happening, and they are, are in fear of her torment. They see this judgment going on in this picture, this vision, um, and so they they just uh, you know they're 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 going to miss this Babylon. But why are they going to miss Babylon? Well, we've been talking about how Babylon is, and we'll even see it more strongly under the merchants, is a picture of the economic and cultural powers as opposed to the kings who we might call the political or military powers. The economic and cultural power of Babylon we've been introduced to is a seductive power. It's subtle. It's not so overt. I suggested or made comment last week that if you look at church history, the church has spent a lot more time struggling with the Babylon than with the kings, or with the beast as it's portrayed in chapter 13. That overt persecution, there are small parts of the history of the church. It's always been there, and it's always there at any given time in history. But most of the church and most of those struggles have been with the subtlety of the temptation to buy in to the world's values around them. And you can go through history and see that all the way through. The merchants. Okay, well, the merchants, they're kind of the ones that carry out this economic and cultural power. Now, I, I put economic and cultural together because throughout all that we've talked about the last couple of sessions, too, uh, because you really can't untangle those. In any society, modern or ancient, the economic and the culture is tied together in some way, and it kind of forms the foundation for everything that goes on in that society. So the merchants were the ones that were, you know, really the agents in this, uh, of the um, putting together this power system. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Well, there's a nice altruistic feeling, right? And I, you notice I there's a skip there for about three verses we'll come back to. The merchants of these wares, this actually starts part two of the merchants' lament, who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that is clothed, was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Now, the ones that's kind of unique about this part is, of course, the, the cargo, which we'll, we'll get more detail, but that's what these merchants miss. They missed the money they were making off of, of uh, selling all these things, selling all these luxury items that we'll see in a little bit. The, um, 
other part that's interesting about this is the, down at the bottom where it talks about the great city, where it describes it as clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and, gold and jewels and pearls. That's just, that almost parallels, I mean, these words are exactly the same words as the first part of chapter 17. When we were introduced to the great prostitute seated on the beast, and she was wearing these kinds of things. Now, what this adds to it that we didn't see before, even though I mentioned it, was fine linen. Now, back when we talked about the, a couple of weeks when we talked about the first part of 17, I tried to get across the idea that uh, the picture of the woman sitting on this beast there was not something that was horrific like the beast. It was a picture of, some, of a person who personified the wealth and nobility of the first century Greco-Roman world. And in that, in that world, the women were considered to be and expected to be more pure, more faithful in that society. And the word fine linen is one word, but the, that fine linen is something you see all throughout Revelation, but it's always a symbol of purity. And so I think we see the same thing here again, that along with this wealth and refinement and cultural elite kind of things that we're looking at here, you got even this sort of facade of purity that makes it more palatable, that makes it easier to accept. Remember, this is a power that's all about being subtle, all about being seductive. So finally, the mariners have them defined here. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those who trade on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads, and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. We learned a whole bunch in the last couple of years about supply chains. Well, these are the guys that took care of the supply chains in the first century. The Mediterranean was the interstate highway system of the Greco-Roman world. And they were involved, the people who transported all these things were a critical part. In fact, some of the power of Rome, when it first began to come to its peak during the imperial period, followed a time, a year, that the Roman general Pompey spent clearing the Mediterranean of pirates. Because that was like, you know, clearing the interstate highways of blockage of some kind. So uh, it was very important. They were the ones who transported everything. It's interesting that they did not fear in the torment that they were seeing. And I, I kind of wonder if maybe some of this might be, they're just the middlemen. You know, we're not, we're not really involved in all this. I mean, we just kind of carry this stuff around, you know. Just business, not personal, you know. Uh, that kind of an idea. Uh, but, they, but they're weeping anyway. They're mourning along with the rest of them because this was the, the, their livelihood. They were making lots of money on transporting some of this cargo, and we're going to look at some of that in a minute. So now, the color coding here really is all about the things that we have in common that these things all have in common. And there are several of these phrases. Uh, they're not identical, but they're parallel, maybe, some of them. The kings and the merchants uh, were of the earth. The mariners were on the sea. Well, that's really, in this context, the two phrases are essentially the same information. They're part of the dwellers of the earth. 
That phrase is used again and again in Revelation. All three groups of mourners stand far off from this judgment. It demonstrates, you know, the type of loyalty you have involved amongst this group. Um, the, they look at that burning, that torment that was going on, and they made some distance between themselves and what was happening. Um, it also tells us that the judgment that's coming on Babylon here is the same person we've been looking at all through 17 and 18. The text that ended, they all grew in at the phrase for a single hour. Now, after each one, you have a little different thing with a slightly different result of after this, for a single hour. In a single hour, your judgment has come with the kings. All this wealth has been laid waste with the merchants. That's their concern. And she has been laid waste as Babylon in general. That was the uh, livelihood of the uh, mariners. Finally, there was abundant weeping and mourning. The mariners even threw dust on their heads in, this, in their mourning. They all cried out, alas, alas, which could be translated woe, woe, or horror, horror, or disaster, disaster. It's all pretty fair. But you know what you don't see in any of this? Repentance. Now we've seen that consistently throughout Revelation, that no matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets, those people who are the dwellers of the earth, those people who have their mind only on those earthly things, just will never bring themselves to repentance. And the same thing is happening here. Lots of mourning, no repentance. So, picking up the text that we skipped over. The cargo. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. Depending on what translation you have, these are all, of course, ESV that we use for teaching here. You could have lots of different things going on here because about half of these words, it's the only time they appear in the New Testament. So that shows up some of those differences. I want to point out three things about this cargo. First, going back to this ties back to the Old Testament that Revelation makes, it was modeled on an extensive list of cargo in Ezekiel 27. And that list of cargo was part of the lament of the destruction of the ancient city of Tyre, which was on the Mediterranean coast in Palestine. A very wealthy, very important trading center. Um, it's interesting throughout 16 and 18, and we've mentioned before how many allusions and quotes there are in Revelation from the Old Testament. In, in 16 through 18, you have allusions or quotes from texts speaking about historical Babylon, Tyre, Nineveh, Sodom, Sodom, and unfaithful Israel. So there's a lot of that going on in here. Second thing I want to point out is these are luxury items, most of them, that were regularly imported into the Roman Empire in the first century. And there's 
ancient documents that show us these lists, these cargo manifests and things that, that things have been found that demonstrate they're all part of this. But what's interesting about most of them is they were very, very expensive and were intended only for ostentatious displays of wealth. That's their only purpose. Finally, the end of this list is particularly interesting. The phrase is bodies and souls of men, or bodies also souls of men. Slaves were a prominent part of the first century Greco-Roman world. The ranks of slaves came from prisoners of war, came from people who had to sell themselves or their children in, into slavery because of their debt. You could be born from slaves, and that made you a slave. The treatment was varied a lot. There's a broad spectrum of treatment of slavery in the, in the first century Greco-Roman world, nothing like what we think of with our own country in the past. Uh, and many had the ability to gain their freedom through various paths, but not all of them, of course. So this, 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 these two, this phrase has kind of multiple levels of meaning to it, potentially, which is not uncommon in both prophetic and apocalyptic literature. Suggest some of them to you. One possibility is that the, the phrase here, bodies and souls of men, is a, a hendiatus, which is a two words put together or phrases to make one, to talk about one. It means the same thing. Uh, it's a technique that's used throughout the Bible, biblical literature. It could be a view of slavery that devalued human life because of the cost in human life required to produce some of these items. At least many of the minerals that are on the list of cargo and those precious stones uh, were mined by slaves who lived in appalling and dangerous conditions. Lifespan was short in those places. It could be an attempt to call attention to the destruction of the human soul, the real meaning of the person that often accompanied the institution of slavery. Another possibility in a more symbolic or abstract sense is the phrase, if you render it, bodies also souls of men, may have been speaking of the slavery to the idolatry of material things for those who succumbed to the seductions of Babylon. So there are lots of possibilities for here. You can pick if you want, or you can do them all, however you want to handle that. So that brings us then to the first, the, ne the next piece of this that's important, which is these interjections, these voices from heaven. I got all three of them up here so we can see them. We already talked last week about, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. The next one shows up in the middle of the lament for the merchants. Verse 14, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. And the last one, at the end, is the second imperative. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So what's unique about these is most of chapter 17 and 18 are written as a third-person narrative. It's talking about they, them, he, she, it. These three phrases are all second-person. They're addressing you. So John's audience, who heard this for the first time or read this for the first time, 
would have figured, well, okay, they're either talking to John, they're saying something to John, or they're saying something to all of us who are reading this or hearing this. And that's what is unique about him. So last time I talked about this, this voice from heaven being a, uh, delivered by, and, you know, the, from the cloud or from heaven. We've seen that before. Every time you have the idea of voice from a cloud, voice from heaven, in the New Testament, not just in Revelation, it's always the voice of God, specifically God the Father. And so God is actually speaking in to these whole visions here as we're talking, as we're reading them and hearing them. The command was pretty straightforward. We looked at last week. Come out from her, although it's difficult. It's easy to understand. Um, I think it's also it's worth pointing out that that's one of the reasons why we think this, you know, can say this is the voice of God because he says, my people. If it's not God, to who do the people belong? And all these voices being in the second person like they are are probably all the same voice. Now the next one, which verse 14, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. This is an interesting one. The word translated fruit, okay, is uh, the Greek word hapora, and it's not the regular word for fruit. That's the word karpos. In fact, this is the only place in the New Testament this word occurs. Now, uh, as I am wont to do, I love rabbit trails like this. So I went on a journey in my own little study world there to see, okay, well, where did this word come from? What's the significance of this thing? So I found it a couple of times in the Greek Old Testament in the uh, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 47 and it's translated there uh, in most time, most cases something like um, let's see if I can find it here the summer fruits or the ripe fruits uh, ready to harvest okay, that idea originally the word spoke to the end of summer it was just a word for the end of summer and of course that then began easily signifying that fruit that comes at the end of summer. Go buy a fruit stand these days and lots of stuff available. It's also used in the lyric poetry or the songs of the, in, the, in Greek. And it was a metaphor, and I think this is interesting because it's a metaphor for the bloom of youth. Now, this seems more likely to me to fit verse 14 than the idea that the most important thing to the soul of somebody is fruit. <laughs> now, the bloom of youth, that's something else. The woman Babylon probably is demonstrating here the idea that she's got to stay young to enjoy all these luxuries. Luxuries aren't as enjoyable as you get older. And in our world... I think we can identify with this. We have an obsession with youth, an attitude that treats aging and mortality as if they're somehow, uh, you know, optional. The soul of Babylon saw perpetual youth as a necessity for the enjoyment of all her delicacies and splendors. This is another interesting phrase. Uh, 
you don't get it in the translations, but it's uh, got a rhythm to it and a similarity of sounds. And the particular words that are used there, they all both kind of look alike. They both have some similar roots and nuances to them. And really, when you put it together, I think probably the best way to understand it is all the shiny stuff. That's really what it's talking about. Now, the woman said that, you know, all the shiny stuff, that, that, that she's going to have it forever. We found this in... Uh, 18, chapter 18, verse 7, in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. The statement here is the first of seven of these, I uh, mentioned in that statement back in chapter 7, verse 7, that it's a very, very strong negative, that she'll, mourning she'll never, never see. And so that's followed up, starting here in verse 14, with seven negatives to contract, you know, being contrary to that to argue against it, to say this is not true. In fact, this one in verse 14 is even made stronger because it's introduced with, and no longer, so really what you got is, and no longer, never, never, they will find her. All of her shiny stuff. Okay. The final one in verse 20 is the other imperative to rejoice. Uh, it's the second one. Come out is the first one. Um, the rejoicing here is in sharp contrast, I think, to the laments of the kings and the merchants and the mariners. It's another place that we see many of these since chapter 6 of Revelation where we actually have something happening to answer the cry of those under the altar who were slain. Oh, sovereign Lord, how long? How long before you will judge and avenge your blood? And I think it's also maybe an answer to what we saw in chapter 11 with the two witnesses when they were murdered or killed, martyred, if you remember, that those who dwell on earth rejoiced over that. They made merry, exchanged gifts. It was all a happy time until those witnesses were resurrected. The prophecies of Jeremiah talk about this as well. Jeremiah has a judgment against historical Babylon in the end of Jeremiah, chapters 50 and 51. Chapter 52 is really like an a epilogue. Jeremiah's prophecies actually end at the end of 51. And we have, we'll look at a couple of these this morning, but we have here then, then the heavens and the earth and all is in them shall sing for joy over Babylon, for the destroyers shall come against them out of the north, declares the Lord. So here again we see Revelation pulling in from the past in the past prophecies. I'm just going to read a quote from G.K. Beale because I think it's such a great summary of this. He wrote, The saints do not rejoice because they have won at the expense of others, but because God has been vindicated. The lost cannot see past their own self-interest. The suffering of others, even destruction of an entire system, concerns them only because of the negative effect on their own fortunes. Here is the difference between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. What ultimately divides the two is the willingness or lack thereof to recognize who God is and to give him the honor and worship he alone is due. So this brings us into the final vision in these two chapters. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, 
So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. There's the rest of the seven. This is the third vision we have in Revelation that has the phrase, mighty angel. My argument is they're all the same in that they're all pictures or visions of Christ in his glory. The first one was actually in chapter 5 in the throne room of Revelation in verse 2. Uh, a mighty angel proclaiming a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. I talked about that back when I was talking about chapter 10. Uh, the second one is in chapter 10, uh, the first verse. A mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. And I believe we have a similar picture here of this mighty angel that acted out a prophetic judgment, picking up this great millstone and throwing it into the sea as a picture of the violence that will throw, overthrow Babylon. Like the command in verse 20 to rejoice, this picture is another allusion to the end of Jeremiah. So we're going to jump ahead here to verses 63 and 64. When you finish reading this book, Jeremiah was told, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates and say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster I am bringing up on her and they shall become exhausted. So kind of a difference of scale here between a giant millstone into the sea and a book into the Euphrates, but you can see where the same ideas are being pulled forward. It's important to remember, I think, that uh, uh, Jesus is the one who judges. Uh, we're going to see some visions in Revelation that's going to become very important. Uh, in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus makes the bold claim the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So we'll be seeing another judgment, a victory, victory uh, in chapter 19, led by Jesus. I think you know, a good case can be made that it's Jesus is seated on the great, seated on the great white throne in chapter 20. Uh, I think this, we see the same thing here with this final picture of this giant millstone being Babylon thrown into the sea. So what we have then, that after the throwing into the sea, where Babylon, the great city, is found no more, it just follows then that all the sights and sounds associated with an ancient city would be no more as well. Music, craftsmen working, milling of grain, light from lamps, voices of brides and bridegrooms, the complete answer to the woman's boast, mourning I shall never see. It's all gone. These words also recall an important intertext that we looked at last week in is Isaiah 47. It's kind of long on the screen here, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, we looked part of it last week already. But uh, picking up here... Um, 
see. In spite of your many kind of in the middle sorceries and great power of your enchantments, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries, with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. That's supposed to be sardonic. Okay, a lot of Isaiah is. So the last couple of verses, probably see those over me. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorceries. Does that sound familiar to what we just read? And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints, and of all who have slain, been slain on the earth. The merchants are singled out here because they're the ones that kind of put this together. Uh, they were the great ones of the earth during this time that had its power based on economic and cultural powers, cultural realities. And it says that they, all the nations were deceived by sorcery. So I'm going to take a look at a couple of these important words. Sorcery, first of all. Uh, first century, this meant the use of magic, often involving drugs and casting spells upon people. The words used twice in the Greek text of Isaiah 47 that we just read. Uh, these were tools used for the purpose of manipulation. And the idea of a lot of that was to deceive people, to mislead or misdirect them, to cause them to be mistaken about something, to gain an advantage over them. This would have reminded the readers, or hearers, Revelation, of the last time we saw the word to deceive. And actually there's two of them, kind of the main one being in chapter 12, verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And then in verse uh, chapter 13, we see his henchman, the second beast, allowed to work miracles in order to deceive those who dwell on the earth. It's the last time we've seen the word deceive before this. Deception and sorcery were... Uh, and a very important part of the first century uh, and this kind of magic and this kind of stuff um, the preferred weapon of the deceiver is the sorcery of deception get us to look at something wrongly uh, now we may not have the same interest in using spells or incantations that they had in order to manipulate people and events that was, that was prevalent in John's day. But we do have social media and advertising and propaganda and spin. All of these are regularly used for the same purpose to manipulate uh, those who are listening. Those engaged in these practices appeal to the emotions, not to the logic or to the reason. They play on fear and anger, grievance, they see nothing wrong with promoting half-truths or even bald-faced lies as long as it gets the right response. The operational imperative of the deceiver of the whole earth was and is the ends justify any and all means. 
however we need to get there. The final statement about the woman of Babylon that we have here is that she, in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints. That takes us back to 17, beginning of 17, where John was shown the punishment of the great prostitute, and it was later said that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. But now John adds this phrase here that in the woman Babylon, there is also found the blood of all who have been slain on the earth. Well, the meaning of this phrase is not real clear. Um, <laughs> I was amazed at the number of commentators who just sort of didn't pay attention to it. <laughs> anyway, a few tried a couple things, but it does have an important connection back in Jeremiah 51. So we see in verse 49, then, that just as for Babylon, have fallen the slain all of the earth. Babylon must, Babylon must fall for the slain of Israel, just as Babylon have fallen for the slain of all the earth. What that means, not really sure. There's lots of speculation we can do, and I thought about doing some of it, but I changed my mind. So, last week, that actually finishes the visions of the defeated. The, uh, I wrapped up last week with some thoughts on how we as Christians resist the pressures uh, that we face in the world, how we come out from her, as we looked at that imperative last week, that command. Uh, the need that we have to be alert to the reality that whatever in our thought and behavior is not Christ-like, it's probably going to be Babylonian because things haven't changed all that much. This week I want to consider some of the ways in which the church is uniquely suited, and I'm just going to do this fairly quickly, uh, to resist the subtleties and the temptations and the powers and the threats of Babylon. The call of come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, is really a corporate imperative more than an individual one. The deceptive economic and cultural sorcery of Babylon uh, was in the air they breathe, it's in the air we breathe. It entices and enchants and seduces. It is reinforced and sometimes enforced by what uh, Stephen Wilkins and Mark Stanford called hidden worldviews, things like scientific naturalism, consumerism, self-autonomy, relativistic morality, nationalism, tribalism, salvation by therapy, seeking the divine within. This is nothing new. Over 70 years ago, A.W. Tozer astutely noted that this world is, uh, quote, clamorous, insistent, and self-demonstrating. It does not appeal to our faith. It is here assaulting our five senses, demanding to be accepted as real and final. And even earlier than that, the Apostle Paul warned his young protege Timothy that understand in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. 
That's the world we live in. Nothing's really changed. And none of this is a surprise to God. If the individual Christian can walk and have a walk to be characterized in the world as a stranger and alien on earth, and many of us can cite chapter and verse on that one, then the corporate Christian walk, I think, is one in which the church is unlike anything on the earth. In his wisdom, God designed this structure to effectively withstand the power of Babylon, it is, and it's the church. And the key to it, that design, is that the church doesn't do things the way the world does. Well, we could spend a lot of time on this subject. I want to just talk about four things in which the church is unlike the world. First of all, the church is responding to a transcendent word. Transcendent means outside of this world, beyond heaven and earth. The transcendent word originated outside of creation with God, through whom all things were made, and who became and God the Son, who became flesh and dwelt among us, and whose word is truth. It includes the Old Testament, which Jesus came to fulfill, and it includes the New Testament that contains the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The word to which the church responds is not discovered, it is revealed. We don't have to discover things. It's all been revealed. We just need to listen. It's the only guide for the life of the church, and there is no church in the New Testament sense apart from the centrality of the Word of God. The church is maintaining a distance inside the church. Now, this is an important one. Like individual members or individual believers, the church exists in the world. It cannot and should not expect to exist otherwise. But inside the church, it works to put a distance between itself and the world outside. It is preoccupied with the worship of God, of our salvation. It has corporate eyes fixed on Jesus as our, our Lord, our author, our perfecter of our faith. It offers only that which cannot be found in the world. If you want other things, go out there. In the church, there's something that can't be found anywhere else. The air it breathes is the atmosphere of grace and thanksgiving. The church is not an organization. It's an organism. It's a living body of Jesus Christ. If the church insists on operating on the basis of the practice of the world, it may succeed in terms of numbers and uh, social visibility, but it will fail in its purpose. Inside the church, the emphasis should be consistent with what we have seen as the traits of the redeemed in John's visions. Steadfastly resisting idolatry of any kind, committed to the truth, unblemished by falsehood. The church is practicing holiness. I like that idea of practicing because we never really arrive. Practicing holiness. The essence of biblical holiness means to be consecrated or devoted. Our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ is an expression of holiness. And that devotion will permeate the church. The Apostle Peter wrote, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
The behavior of the church and those in it is to reflect a moral standard revealed in the word of God, not how the world feels about something at any given point in time. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And love is an expression of holiness, not an alternative to it. To be concerned with God's holiness does not lead to a dead legalism. The church is a community that knows it's made up of sinners, but we're bound by the initiative of God's grace. As theologian David Wells put it, without this holiness of God, sin has no meaning and grace has no point. For it is God's holiness that gives to the one its definition and to the other its greatness. The church does not have to seek holiness. In striving to find it, we already possess it. Because to be part of the church means to have the spirit of Christ indwelling within us. Paul made that very clear. That if you don't have the spirit of Christ in you, you're not a believer. What the church actively seeks is the renewing of our minds and our hearts to bring us into conformity with the purpose for which God saved and called us to his holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purposes and grace. Finally, the church is functioning as a family. The church is made up of siblings adopted by the same father. Our local church here is our immediate family. All the other local churches out there are the extended family. All those believers who have gone before us, that's our genealogical family. As we have learned in Revelation, the redeemed come from every nation, all tribes, peoples, languages. And what binds this family together is that each one is called and chosen and faithful. Like family members in most human societies, we bear a common name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And like human biological families, the church family can be a little messy. But the purpose of this family is to follow the command of Jesus to love one another as he has loved us. In fact, that's how the world will know we are his disciples. Both inside and outside the church, our lives should exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, that indwelling spirit within us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Finally, the church is responsible for maintaining the family honor. This is where discipling and sometimes discipline has become part of the church. The reputation of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ and of the church as a body it's on the line with everything we do and say individually and corporately. So if we are to be unlike anything in the world, then how should we understand worldliness? I'd like to close with uh, my favorite quotes on this subject, also by the theologian David Wells. Worldliness is that set of practices in a society, its values and its ways of looking at life, that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. It is a view of the world that puts the sinner at the center and relegates God to the periphery, the disposition that takes different forms in different cultures. In our secularized Western culture, it has produced an environment in which there is no place for truth, 
no place for the transcendent summons of God's word of grace, an environment in which all reality is contracted into the self and accountability before God has vanished, leaving felt need as its own justification. It has produced a world of solely horizontal reality in which human beings have supplanted God and declared themselves the captains of their fate and the masters of their destiny. I think that pretty well summarizes the world we live in, but that's not all we're to be inside the church. Individually and corporately, our job is to make sure that the church is unlike anything in the world. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we are part of this body, that we are part of the church. We thank you for the grace that brings us here and gives us the right to be here. And I pray that you'll have, help us to keep that foremost in our minds as we go forward through the rest of this day and for the rest of this week.